The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Welcome to Restoration Radio. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Heiner, with uh, my co-host, Nicholas Wandsbutter of Swords and Space. Thanks for joining us, Nicholas. And what you heard um, just now was the Hunger Games theme music by, I think the gentleman's name, or the group's name is pronounced Mephiston. And uh, I think off-air, Nicholas, we were talking a little bit about the guitar riffs, reminding us a little bit of Firefly for those of us who uh, who know and love that show. Right. Um, we are obviously going to be talking about the Hunger Games today. We wanted to start our show by um, responding to a bit of the feedback that we've gotten on the previous two shows. Um, the only way that we're going to make our show better is by by listening to feedback and, and working on the things that need to be improved. And um, I suppose the first reflection would be on our very first show. Um, a lot of the, the, the prevailing comments were that uh, the topics were a bit esoteric and the show ran a bit long. I'm perfectly willing to concede both points. But uh, the second show uh, was very well received. It had over 200 live listeners, had lots of questions both on Twitter and by call-ins, and we've had to date over 1,200 downloads of the podcast. So for those of you who'd like to see a bit more of that sort of <clears throat> interview with clerics, um, I didn't man- manage to plug my, my YouTube channel, but if you go to youtube.com forward slash true restoration, you can see more interviews for free, excerpts from interviews I've done. And, of course, I forgot to mention that the sponsorship, one of the sponsors of the show, of course, is True Restoration Media, which does a lot of streaming uh, live, uh, not streaming live interviews, but streaming interviews and downloadable interviews. Um, You can find that at truerestorationmedia.com. So without further ado, uh, let's get into today's show, which is, of course, about the Hunger Games, a sort of cultural phenomenon. And when Nicholas and Pierre and I, and hopefully Pierre will be joining us a little later today, he first put together the idea for the entire con- show concept, Restoration Radio. The, the comment, the idea that was common to all of us was that we saw things like Harry Potter come and go, Twilight, and we would see Catholic commentary lacking because inevitably these the sort of dour trads would write about these books and talk about how dangerous they were, and they never read them. And of course, this is very delegitimizing, not only in the sense that in the spirit of St. Thomas, you try to read what you disagree with so that you can better encounter how to refute it. Um, and so rather than play that boring game again, we decided to make sure we were going to have a discussion with those who'd actually read the book and perhaps seen the movie. And um, Nicholas had a chance to, to read the book and see the movie. And we're not going to have the discussion of, you know, is the book better or the movie better? Uh, I think that's a bit arcane and inaccurate anyway. But I think, Nicholas, as a as a, a fan of science fiction, why don't, why don't we take that tack first? Would you would you say it's good science fiction? I'd say it's uh, mediocre science fiction, um, and, and in a way, it almost barely qualifies as science fiction, in my view. I mean, it does take place in a society other than our own, uh, in a world. That, well, I mean, it takes place on planet Earth, but it's really a world other than our own. It's nominally post-apocalyptic, although you really don't get a feel from the book or from the film that it is a post-apocalyptic work. Um, It's uh, mentioned only uh, in passing or tangentially a few places in the book, but I I didn't feel that 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 aspect was 
played up at all, so you don't really get a feel of it. It feels almost more like a near-future uh, uh, novel, except, of course, that you know the country Panem, which is the uh, country that it uh, takes place in, doesn't exist. Um, and, and there isn't really much of the science. When we think of science fiction, at least I tend to think of spaceships and intergalactic travel or uh, interesting new technology that doesn't exist in our own time. But uh, that aside, you know, it is still science fiction, but I I say it's mediocre um, uh, for uh, a number of reasons. Uh, I say, first, I've already alluded to the, uh, I thought the, the author, Ms. Collins, really missed out on the potential for the dystopian um, uh, post-apocalyptic world and didn't really um, use it to the full potential either and and didn't give us any explanation as to why her world was the way it was. And and to be fair, for those who are unfamiliar with the term dystopia, um, we're referring to 1984, Brave New World, these sort of twist clockwork orange, these sort of very twisted futures. And I think you're onto something with with having an explanation for how did we get to this point. We're sort of just presented in medias res that this is the world as it is. And when you don't right. give the explanation, there's a bit of lacking uh, in in the compulsion for the characters. Right. Um, and um, just con- guess continuing my reasons for saying it's mediocre. I mean, it does have good things going for it, and I'm not gonna go at it both barrels blazing like some of these uh, type of articles that you've mentioned that I think are really uh, lacking in uh, credibility. Like uh, w- one friend of mine, when I was telling him about uh, today's show, sent me an article. Uh, I looked it up. It's from a website called henrymacow.com and I-, I guess it's one of those, it's not a website I'm familiar with, but I guess it's the type that is popular among a lot of traditional Catholics because it's got lots of articles about the Illuminati and about the New World Order and about feminism and about the Rockefellers' involvement in history and uh, uh, things like that. Um, so all, of article, which, all of which we should, we should say have their place. Those aren't, those right. aren't all entirely conspiracies. but Yeah, the, the, there is their place, although uh, a, a lot of it, I think, is in the, uh, the delivery. There, there are Sometimes these sites tend to be over the top. And I, I found their article, one of these things that's over the top saying that, uh, what's the title there from this one here? The Hunger Games, Satanic Ritual for Teens. Hmm. Um, uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't go that far. They, they took a lot of issue with the fact that you have children killing each other, which is certainly a disturbing theme. But um, I'm not sure that having a disturbing theme means that the author is promoting this. Uh, one of the good things about the book is I, I think it's quite made quite clear in the book that this is horrific, that this is going on, and this is an evil uh, situation. Um, and that's, going back again to dystopias that we're talking about, that's kind of the essence of a dystopic uh, work, is that you're, you are depicting a world that's horrible and terrible things are happening in it, um, well, I think there's, there's a tension among traditional Catholics is, you know, how do we want to expose our children to the ugly? And, and I think there's some validity there. But I want to pick up, I want to leave that aside for a minute. I want to pick up on what you're talking about, the children killing children, because that's what it, I told you, I told you and Pierre, is that initially, that's what put me off in the book. I, I you know, 
I enjoy dystopia and science fiction as much as anyone else, but the whole theme of children killing children is very disturbing to me, and it put me off. But deeper than this, we're looking at the theme of human sacrifice within a highly advanced civilization, which we've seen before. We've seen this within the Aztecs. We've seen this with the Romans. We've seen this with the Greeks. Um, the story of Theseus. For those of you who aren't familiar with the, Theseus, with the Theseus story, there was an annual tribute of uh, young Athenian youths that were sent to um, Crete to navigate this uh, labyrinth, which was created by Daedalus, um, the father of Icarus. And inside, of course, was the Minotaur. And Theseus, you know, was so upset about this tribute that he volunteered one year, and he went in and, of course, killed the Minotaur. And we'll leave aside the story of Ariadne because it's a sad one, but um, this idea of human sacrifice in the past, I think there's a luxury of, of us looking back and saying it's in the past. So perhaps one of the the provocative aspects of the Hunger Games is it's presenting us with the future, that human sacrifice is not in our past, it is yet to come. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think that satanic ritual, I mean, absolutely it's satanic. The question is, do we want to examine it and see why this theme is so prevalent in today's culture? Right. And uh, and that's one thing I was when I was watching the film and reading the book. One of the things that I was keeping in my back of my mind was why is this particular work uh, so popular among young adults, and uh, what, is there something that resonates with them? And I think to a certain extent, this human sacrifice does resonate with them because uh, I get the impression that a lot of young people feel like they've been sacrificed in a certain way by their parents and by the adults in their lives and they um, this comes from a certain sense of uh, abandonment uh, many broken families today uh, families where both parents uh, are working uh, long hours and don't have time uh, for the children and uh, that that was a, a very uh, prevalent theme in the book I mean the main character Katniss Everdeen her father died in a mine explosion years before the beginning of the work, and her mother uh, went into a sort of catatonic state for, it's not clear whether it's months or years, but uh, certainly a lengthy period of time in the wake of her father's death. So she was completely abandoned by her parents. And then on a broader scale, I had a, a sense that... Um, uh, the you know, the adults had abandoned their children by allowing them to be sacrificed in these Hunger Games, and uh, one didn't get the impression that any of them ever did anything to try and stand up against it or try and bring an end to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're talking about the identification of today's youths with the book because they, too, feel abandoned. So it's a, it's a commiseration. They say, I, right. I know what Katniss is going through because I, I don't really have my parents... Uh, active in my life. I think it's a really interesting trope you picked up on. Yeah, and and I think that's part of why it is being such a blockbuster among the young adults. So when I, and that seems to be the main, like where these hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are coming from, largely, when at least the showing I went to was all, all the other people in the theater were between the ages of 16 and 25, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that also, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I know one of the 
themes that, that you mentioned to me in preparation for the show was uh, kind of the love triangle. Uh, well, of course, we know that's very popular among teens, yes. Right, right. Although um, I, I, uh, I, I took something a little bit different from it, and it's a lot clearer in the uh, novel than it is in the movie. Um, it's not just a love triangle, because there's uh, something very uh, artificial and deceptive about it, because especially in the novel, uh, Katniss only pretends to have affection for uh, the uh, the boy who's uh, taken Peter. from her district and sent in with her. Now, in the movie, it's, uh, it's not clear that she's pretending, and you think, okay, maybe... It's a bit uh, more ambiguous. She, she's kind of, yeah, she really has started developing feelings for him because, uh, to me, he's a, uh, Peta, um, uh, is the uh, name of the boy. He's kind of the really heroic character, um, because he's the one who actually does selfless things. Um, he puts himself in harm's way to protect Katniss, um, on a number of occasions, and he has this legitimate caring for her, um, but uh, and it, so it's ambiguous in the film, but in the novel, it's clear to the very end that she's just putting on a show for the benefit. Well, really, it's self-preservation because uh, this line isn't in the film, but in the in the I don't think it is anyway. I don't remember it. Uh, where uh, one of the adults that's helping her, a mentor, he tells her uh, each kiss is going to be worth a, a loaf of bread. So when she when they're out there starving. Uh, one of the little rules in this game is that they have sponsors that can uh, spend money to buy gifts for them that get parachuted down into the arena for the uh, the children. And uh, so she plays this game so that she can get... Um, well, actually, there is one scene where they are starving, and she remembers that line, so she starts pretend, you know, playing this, uh, this uh, love theme up. And it... Uh, and the, the the thing I found interesting about it is because I think this is another thing that resonates among young adults and perhaps especially among young ladies is the uh, really hyper-sexualization of society and the way it really targets the youth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're receiving sex education at what, like, I don't I don't even know anymore. I think it was age 12 back in the Stone Age. I've heard, even, I've heard even younger yeah, here in I the United States. I think it's even younger now. And, you know, they're giving them... Uh, HPV vaccine, which is a vaccine for an STD to 12-year-old girls, and the media, I mean, you know, the the ads, I mean, even you look at clothes that, that uh, I see, like, four- or five-year-old toddlers wearing, it's, you know, the, you know, uh, low-cut, tight jeans, like, they're wearing that clothes from a very young age, and I think uh, young people maybe feel a certain, like, well, this is what's normal, this is what we're expected to do. Um, and perhaps young ladies even more so because uh, young men are, thinking back, probably more interested in that sort of stuff than young ladies are at a certain age, but they feel it's expected of them or, uh, again, the, the sense of abandonment from their parents they are looking for love in all the wrong places. And um, uh, so they get they end up in these situations. And uh, I, I actually I think, Stephen, you sent me an article that was talking about that, about this... Uh, among young adults, and this is more the university age. Uh, can't remember the. Do you remember the article? Yes, and I. Well, and you've gone down a very sort of fruitful digression. I, I there's lots of jumping off points that that I want to hit. Um, but let me let me take it first back to 
Katniss and the heroism, and again, back to Christian themes, Right. we talked about human sacrifice and we talked about the fact that it's occurred in advanced civilizations. I think what makes this particularly important for us as Catholics is we understand Christianity as always being able to civilize barbarisms. So we saw the you know, holy water and wedding rings that were once barbarian customs become something that inculturated within Catholicism. And also, too, in a way, human sacrifice, um, through the sacrifice of the cross, has been elevated in terms of the greatest commandment. Of course, there is no greater light, there is no greater love than, than this, that one lay down one's life for one's friend. I guess my question is, is that, is that, what, uh, is that what's going on for uh, Katniss? Um, because I, I don't really... Uh, obviously, she's trying to lay down her life for her sister in the initial volunteering, but then the conceit is... I'm now going to go murder children at least as young as my sister, if not younger, so that I can save my sister. It's a bit, it's a bit self-defeating. It, it is, and that that goes back again for because we kind of got sidetracked with my explaining why I think it's only mediocre science fiction. I think that's one of the ones there. Um, Katniss is lacking that kind of heroism that we expect from a uh, from the the hero of a work, and I think. Well, I mean, you know, there's different brands of science fiction, and I tend to be more of the um, science fantasy reader, and certainly fantasy, this is huge. It's almost required in fantasy, um, is having, you know, that heroic lead who uh, um, does heroic things. Whereas Katniss really just comes across to me as self-preserving once she gets into the games. Um, I mean, there's that initial, she volunteers uh, to take her sister's place, but from then on, it's just self-preservation, and you don't even, I mean, I've seen some people refer to the novel as being devastating uh, to them in, the, in its portrayal of the killing of the youth, but, I mean, it is in a certain way, but I didn't find it devastating another way, because you kind of feel detached from it, because... Katniss tends to be somewhat detached from it. Like she doesn't seem to feel that, have any reaction really to, uh, um, to killing other children. Um, well, and that she really reacts. Oh, I mean, I do think that brings us to something we see today with the, the sort of somatized youth, and we have medications that we're giving not only to everyone else, but especially to our youth, and so. There is a general numbness that has to sort of permeate the population, and so, of course, she kind of has to be dead to her senses. Right. There's something else going on here, though, because, of course, all of those things that we refer to, especially the story of Theseus, involves, of course, the, the man rescuing the woman. But we've seen this movie before. We saw it in Rollerball. We saw it in The Running Man, Death Race 2000, somewhat in Spartacus. Um, but in this, we get a female heroine version. So sort of our Xena warrior princess update a la Diana, um, the goddess Diana with the, the bow hunting skills. Um, we're seeing, we are seeing an update here um, for, for modernity that we need to have female heroines that are rough and tough and, and, and can uh, deal with the boys just as well as anyone else can. Right, Hello, yeah, uh, and... And Pierre, I think Stephen Elizabeth, I finally made it. I'm very, very sorry for the lateness of my arrival on the show. Technical. Yeah, sorry, problems, we were uh, we were just talking about the, the fact audience, that but, uh, it made me, it was very difficult for me to join. 
No, uh, we're, we're happy to have you. Dr. Pierce Hugel, one of our other co-hosts, uh, after some telephone difficulties is through. Pierce, we were just talking about the fact that we need to have a, fem- a female version, uh, a female heroine version of what we've seen in the Theseus story, Rollerball, Running Man, and that the Hunger Games is, is somewhat uh, affording this for us. Yeah, okay. Right, and no, no, I, I, I just caught the, uh, the beginning of that conversation there. Right, well, that's true. well, if you don't mind, Pierce, I'm just going to go off on that one, because that's one of the things that uh, I've observed, I mean, I'm, uh, it won't come as any surprise to anyone that knows me or that reads uh, Swords in Space. I'm, I mean, almost all I read or watch is science fiction fantasy. And this is something that I've really noticed uh, in the last years is it almost seems mandatory now that you have to have the strong female warrior woman as your big hero, almost to the point that I think it might be edgy to do a film or a, or a novel that features a strong male lead as uh, as the big action hero. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this possibly really... I mean, I see somewhat of a starting point of it with the uh, the Alien movies. Not so much the first film, uh, Ridley Scott's film from 77. But uh, definitely not how it's really, been. because you don't, have, you don't have Ripley in that film strapping guns on and going blasting aliens in that one. She's just kind of running for her life the whole film. But uh, Cameron's uh, film, which... Uh, um, well, I'll try. I I could say lots about it, uh, but um, aside from its uh, horrible and moronic portrayal of Marines, and Stephen is a former Marine, I'm sure you'd agree with me that <laughs> Marines don't behave that way, and that in real life they'd probably mop the floor with the aliens uh, rather than getting massacred. But um, you know, that's one of the first films that, that I'm aware of where you have, like, you know, the female character. She near near the end of the film, there she loads herself up with all kinds of weaponry and goes as the one woman army to take on the alien hive. And since then, it's it's become more and more possible. I mean, just look at uh, the films that have been out recently. Um, you've got uh, Resident Evil with uh, Mila Jovovich is, uh, is the, uh, the, you know, big zombie killer. You've got uh, Underworld with... Um, uh, I hate Beckinsale. Beckinsale is... No, uh, I'm not telling that I know, I know who the stars of these are. <laughs> right, um... Uh, you know, I, I, you know. I mean, upcoming, you've got uh, well, uh, you know, the, the new Robin Hood, of course. Maid Marian has to get slapped into armor and put into the middle of a battle at one point. Yes. Um, I saw the preview for uh, um, when I was at the Hunger Games. Saw the preview for the Snow White and the Huntsman, and of course, you've got Snow White at some point in the film, <laughs> according to the trailer, again putting on plate mail and uh, fighting in the midst of battle. Well, and I think it's a vital narrative. It's a vital narrative for modernity. If, if we're equal and there's no difference between men and women, and anything a man can do, a woman can do better, that you have to put forward the narrative of equality vis-a-vis these female heroines. Right. And, and I think that, uh, that's part of again what makes not only that, but it has to be done consistently and determinedly, always as much as possible. Isn't that true? Right, because once you've made this point, you have to consistently drive it home. So it has to be, in a, fen- in a sense, uh, normalized, too. Right, Not and I think it has but something that you do again and again. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point, Piers, and I, th- I think it has been normalized. As I say, at this point, I think it would be considered edgy if uh, someone hmm. did a science fiction fantasy film where none of the women end up in armor butchering people. <laughs> you know, it'll be a bit retro, you could say. Yeah, <laughs> Um, I want to I want to I want to pause and pivot on this point, um, Pierce. Um, 
I had, didn't have a chance to introduce you because you weren't with us at the beginning of the show, but... Um, yes, apologies again Dr. for that. Oh, no, no, no worries. Dr. Pierre Sugil is a private tutor and writer. Uh, he's got an interest in, in Catholic education, homeschooling, especially classic uh, Catholic liberal arts. And um, I had asked Nicholas, was it great um, science fiction? And I think for those who don't know your background, you're an English teacher. My question is, is yeah. it great literature? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this question um, because obviously it was the book that I was primarily interested in. And I think there were probably uh, two responses for that, to that. Uh, is it good literature? One, it is good in the sense that it's worked. It's good because it's actually captured the imagination of uh, many young people, apparently. I mean, if you look at the sales statistics, it seems that it's been, you know, it was on the bestseller list in the New York Times for many, many weeks uh, and has sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of units, so to speak, uh, worldwide. It is good because it has captured the imagination of uh, young people. I don't mean morally good. I mean in successful good. Uh, and it has those traditional features, I think, that, that uh, make good children's or young people's fiction. It has adventure. It has love. It has um, a sense of heroism. Uh, and these are the kind of uh, critical uh, features that a book has to have. It has to have danger. It has to have a certain kind of excitement, a certain violence, really, I think, uh, in adventure books of this kind to grab the imagination of young people. In that sense, it's good literature. Um, is it good literature rather than good? Um, I think good literature, if it's good literature for children, it has to capture uh, or envisage somehow moments of moral danger. And it does that, but it's always done in a way that's perhaps potentially problematic. I mean, there are a number of themes of that we, we as Catholics, but we also as readers could discuss in terms of uh, moral danger or moral concerns there's the apparent destruction of the family um, are there any scenes there that come to mind immediately for you regarding well, that uh, certainly there's something I think that Nicholas perhaps wants to talk about as well the idea of, of um, abandonment um, the idea of, of parents being distant the mother becoming this depressed um, uh, sort of passive case, you know, this woman that needs help from her children. Uh, if we were talking about role reversals, uh, men and women, there's also a sense in the role reversal in which it's young people that have to save old people. It's the daughter, the 16-year-old daughter, that has to save her mother because her father has, in a sense, abandoned them by being blown up in a mine explosion. Uh, but there is that love of Prim, Primrose, her, her younger sister. So there's a, there's a strong sense of family being a uh, source of survival and consolation in the world of Pan Am, uh, in the novel, which is a positive thing, definitely. Um, another, we were talking about a sense of adventure. Uh, I think there's that there too, and that can be um, a moment of moral danger, i.e. one has to go out into the world and make something of oneself. But again, the danger in the book is, is or the adventure in the book is, is about survival. It's about criminality, poaching. It's about a kind of brutalism. Um, there's also tropes, I think, in the, the, the novel of, of loyalty to friends and to family. Uh, but that's distorted, again, by the situation that they find in it. So nobody can really trust anybody else. 
either outside but, the arena or inside. And, and I wonder, too, is is not that whole sense of sacrifice, and I, I talked about this a bit with Nicholas before you joined us on the air, is, is not that whole sense yeah. of self-sacrifice somewhat vitiated by the fact that you turn around and murder little children in order to save, you know, save your little sister? Uh, it, it's, sort of, it's ultimately self-defeating, is it not? Yeah. Well, this is what I'm saying, that, that, that there are all those the, the, the sort of requisite areas of moral action that, that a good novel need to have, needs to have, but in each case it's been distorted, perverted, corrupted by the, the world in which it's set. I mean, even love, I mean, teenage romance, for, its, for, for good or ill, I think, you know, you, you can never stop teenagers or young people falling in love. But, I mean, again, here it's so perverted and manipulated by the media world that they inhabit that... that, that uh, Countess never knows whether she really has any kind of affection for or what kind of affection she's supposed to have for Peter or Gail, the two possible uh, love objects, so to speak, or objects of romance in the film. It's it's utterly corrupted, um, the, the experience of love in this world. And the point uh, I brought to Stephen, perhaps you can comment or agree or disagree with me on this, it seems to me that it's also perverted or distorted by the rather... Amorality of the characters themselves. Um, I know one of the uh, articles that I read about this in preparation is that uh, one Christian science fiction writer was saying he was disappointed that um, Katniss didn't uh, say any prayers over the body of uh, the little girl Rue, who gets killed at one point, and then Katniss uh, decorates her body with flowers and that because she's distraught over what ha- happened and she liked this girl and wanted to honor her, but. Um, uh, of course, uh, that, that's part of the, the setting is written by someone who's not Christian. Uh, there's no vestiges whatsoever of Christian civilization in it, whereas in our own world, there's I think we're still somewhat running on the fumes of Christendom. There's still some of those Christian values ingrained in people, whereas it's completely absent in this work, and you get these, what I'd characterize as somewhat amoral characters. And th- that, So I think you could write a good and Catholic work with a horrible, dystopic future like this where they're doing these things but I think to to not pervert it to, to make it good you'd have to have the characters be more moral themselves and at some point do the Captain Kirk uh, thing when he's been thrown into situations like this uh, of just refusing to fight or refusing to kill a, uh, other individuals like instead of doing the glorified pagan noble suicide at the end, uh, just throwing down the weapon and saying, we're not killing each other, do whatever you want. Well, yes. I think this, this goes back to what we were talking about, is you have to reinforce the new reality. So the new reality is that men and women are equal, and women heroines are just as great as male heroes, and there's there's no question, there's there's nothing else that's being missed here. We're just, we're just going to make everything equal. Well, so too, we have to make a future with no Christianity, not even no Christianity, no religion whatsoever. When we know very well that religion is a natural impulse within the, the breast of man, not just something invented by a bunch of monks. Yeah. Um, for those of you who are I mean, just joining us, um, we are broadcasting our third episode of Restoration Radio on um, the Hunger Games, the cultural phenomenon of the Hunger Games, and we're trying to look at it through a more Catholic lens. My co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter of Swords in Space, and Dr. Pierce Hugel, um, a Catholic educator and writer. Um, we're going to open up the phone lines now for those of you um, who can call American numbers or uh, live in America. Our guest call-in number is 949 949- Two seven two nine four one seven. Again, that's nine four nine two seven two nine four one seven. You can also submit questions on Twitter at twitter.com 
forward slash true restoration. For those of you um, who have Facebook, you can also go to the Swords in Space uh, or True Restoration Facebook pages, both of those at forward slash True Restoration Press and forward slash Swords in Space. Uh, So feel free to submit your questions or call in. We will try to get to your calls as soon as possible. I think a couple of you had called in a little earlier and there was a bit of a technical glitch and you got hung up on. So apologies for that. Feel free to call back in. So going back to that point of the new reality, what other new realities do we see here? So we've gotten rid of religion. We're going to get rid of the male-female difference. What else are we trying to get rid of in the Hunger Games? Well, (laughs) you've asked too good of a question, Stephen. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one, I just, one of the things I wanted to do in response, I mean, I haven't been able to catch all of the discussion uh, that has gone on so far, but a common theme of the criticism that I've read uh, describes the novel as dystopic or apocalyptic. And in a funny kind of way, I, I don't think it is. It seems more like a, just a, a, our own society through you know, a slightly more violent lens. If you as Father Robert Barron says in in his comments on YouTube, uh, if you just took away the last vestiges of Christianity in Western society, you you wouldn't have to push imagination too far to imagine something like this. Yeah, I I don't uh, think you do. Although One interesting commentary I saw is that they were criticizing it. They thought, well, I think it was National Catholic Reporter or some of that, that they they thought this was so outlandish that nothing like this could ever happen, but... uh, (laughs) I don't think we're far from this at all. I mean, like, UFC is already getting pretty close to this from what I've seen of it. I read a statistic that UFC should be the most popular sport in the world, surpassing the NFL, which the NFL has its own gladiatorial themes, of course, but that UFC will be more popular than the NFL in a few years. So, yeah, it's a very pop. The brutality is very, very popular. Right. Was it Rollerball, the film, where the the sport became more and more violent to to entertain the... the, uh, Entertain its fans that it ended up being basically fatal to all players bar one. Yes, yeah, so, well, and what's Am interesting right? about rollerball is it presaged the um, advent of reality television, where we would yeah. we would we would watch, and with of course the ironic self condemnation, we're watching, hence we're participating. Um, and, and we see that presaged in Rollerball. And again, it's here too. Uh, it, it, I think one of the characters has a line, well, if nobody would watch the games, well, maybe they wouldn't do it. Well, and of course, <laughs> that's part of it. So you are a participant in the brutality even by doing nothing. Yeah. It's the idea of everything being televised, our whole lives being something to, to communicate through media, to be watched, to become entertainment. That seems to be the most essential theme. And, and the fact that it's now fatal violence that becomes the source of the entertainment is just another addition. Mm. Just as you can imagine, or you could see Roman society becoming more and more brutalized under the emperors until inventing new ways of torturing the, you know, the gladiators became you know, just a ramping up of the equivalent of the Roman media. Right, too, and, and Nicholas had brought up the point, you know, why have none of the adults stood up? And, of course, I think this goes back to the sort of nebulous, well, we don't know how we got to Ponham, this place now, so we can't start to ask those questions. Because if we did, then we'd say, well, why haven't the adults stood up? Um, why are they letting this happen to their own children? Right. And this, and this brings they, up... They seem go ahead, to Nicholas. try and address that in the film. Uh, I just should comment, because neither of you have seen the film. In the film... They do have a scene where after, and 
I, I'm saying spoilers at free will here. Uh, I should have warned <laughs> people at the beginning of the show because I wouldn't recommend the book or the film to anyone. So um, mm -hmm. given that I don't recommend anyone go see or read it, I'm not going to hold back on spoilers. Um, <laughs> I, I've mentioned a few times the death of this little girl, Rue. She's, she's a 12-year-old girl that kind of latches on to Katniss, uh, and they form a mini-alliance uh, um, in the uh, game, and then the little girl's killed at one point. And then uh, I, I mentioned how Katniss decorates her body with flowers, and then she um, she gives kind of this signal. Now, in the book, she directs it towards the little girl. It's this uh, gesture that they have from her uh, district where they kiss their three fingers and then hold out their arm with the three fingers towards the individual. And uh, in the novel, it's described as um, uh, some sort of gesture of, of respect. Um, so in, in the novel, she directs that towards the dead girl. In the film, she directs it towards the cameras. And then they show a scene back on District 11, which is where the little girl Rue is from. And then everyone there is giving her the gesture back on the screen. And then they start a riot and start... Um, uh, you know, knocking over grain bins, and then all the then you see peacekeepers coming in with you know riot shields and water cannon and things like that. So in the film, they try to give a bit of an idea that you know the adults have stood up or do try to stand up, and they just get horribly crushed by the capital, who's just so much more powerful than them. Um, and uh, I haven't read the second and third novels. Apparently. In the second novel, there is an uprising, and by the third novel, they've ultimately overthrown uh, the capital. But um, you and you've definitely ru ruined it for all of those who are aspiring to see the next book. Piers, you also oh. said that you you were happy to engage in spoilers because you didn't think anyone should read it either. Do you have a, a, a reasons that vary from Nicholas's? Well, I didn't. I didn't make any strong suggestion that way. I think probably Nicholas's instinct is is correct. I, I don't think that that Catholic youth would would gain very much by reading this book, because uh, I began talking about you know the fact that there are good literature should have uh, moments of moral danger, which are successfully overcome. One should add, and that's the problem. They're not really successfully overcome. They're they're uh, sidestepped. Or they become so distorted by the the lens of the all-powerful media that that nobody really knows what they're doing themselves or who they are. I mean, even the the uh, gesture of taking the poisonous berries at the end, as uh, Nicholas says, is a kind of pagan gesture of suicide. Although you you get the impression in the book that they don't really mean it. It's a kind of again, it's just a kind of another survival. What's the fake? She, she 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 knows that they're not really going to uh, allow this to happen. So it's it's a fake suicide. Which is why the, the, the rebellion begins in the second book, um, and why the, why the capital is so cross with that because they know this too. But but um, even that, she doesn't know really what the, the value of it was. She doesn't know whether she was really trying to save Peter or herself or, or what she was doing. But there's such moral ambiguity all the way through. And we were talking about the lack of uh, Christian symbolic elements in the book in this post-Christian, this post-religious world. I think some critics have made the point that maybe Peter himself is the only one who can be seen to, to, to have a kind of an integrity. I'm not the heroine, not the main character, but another character who's ultimately kind of turned in. 
uh, and becomes a sort of morose uh, sort of loser at the end because he feels that the, the girl he loves has rejected him. Well, he, Kat, he is seen as is somebody who's always sacrificing himself. Sorry. If she's not the heroine, can we maybe see her, you know, as part of the Occupy movement that she's the hero of the 99%? You know, she's rising up against the 1%. So if she has her moral failings, so be it. But at least she's with the 99%, or, or sort of Robin Hood at at work. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I mean, obviously, ultimately, in the book, she does lead a rebellion against the capital. But, but um, I'm just trying to point out that the, the, the way that the moral issues are handled always leads to ambiguity uh, and, and to a, a sense that there are no real answers, i.e., it's a purely humanist response. You know, ultimately, I have to figure out for myself some kind of compromise. Uh, I can't just refuse to, to kill. I can't just um, refuse to engage with this thing, which is completely wrong. I have to find some kind of human, in inverted commas, uh, compromise with the system to survive. And that's more important than anything else. And that is not a, not a really a Christian message, is it? Um, and that may be where the, the, where the real moral dilemma is, or the real moral problem with the novel is. Uh, is, that, is that kind of how you feel, Nicholas? I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you have distinctly different reasons. It. Yeah, I, I'd agree, but um, just going back to the Robin Hood, I don't think that comes across that, that she is uh, really even a representative. Um, it, it really just comes across as she's it's pure survival, pure her her trying to survive. I don't know if there really is uh, that sense. Maybe there is, I, I suppose, a little bit more in the film, as I mentioned, and... Uh, I I suppose it com- probably comes out more in the second novel because from the um, some of the things I've read online, the second novel seems to be certainly more popular among more Christian uh, individuals. So uh, maybe it comes out more there, and that's why they're trying to uh, foreshadow that a little bit in the film. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, just I mean, all the- I know. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Go. I, I, I was just going to say, on a, on a more positive note, you can you could argue that, or you could read the book this way that these failed moral attempts to deal with the situation are, in a sense, what the book is about. It's about the way this totalitarian media completely corrupts people and makes them an inhuman, somehow, and unable to make genuine moral choices. Uh, and it's that sense of being of a, of a kind of corrupting tyranny, which is the main theme of the, the, the book. And that might be a way of turning it around, but it doesn't necessarily resolve the problems that we've been talking about, about the main characters ultimately right. failing to make and, strong and, decisions. Yeah, and from that perspective, I suppose the work that is interesting in that regard is you can look at it as a, um, as a somewhat of a commentary or an inadvertent commentary on the modern world. Um, so in a way, uh, I found it worthwhile uh, preparing for this show, and even though I didn't particularly enjoy uh, the novel or the film, um, which is another reason why I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not telling people, you know, get the pitchforks and go and burn down the theaters that are showing this film. Um, you know, I think, there's, I think there are some good aspects to it. I think there's moral problems with it. I personally didn't find it that enjoyable. But um, I think it, it, it is interesting maybe to, uh, to study it, uh, not as entertainment, but study it as a way of looking at, you know, 
where modern world's headed, what the modern mind is thinking. Clearly, uh, Suzanne Collins, I would say, by just judging her by the novel, I mean, I've obviously never met her, I don't know anything about her, but it would seem to be a thoroughly modern, secular, liberal individual. And uh, that brings me around to one thing that I don't want to forget to, I don't want to miss out on, is because uh, I don't know whether this individual is going to call in with this question, but uh, one gentleman who I was uh, discussing uh, this show with, as I was trying to promote it around uh, the chapel that I attend, I was talking to some individuals, and uh, one man who's a, a father asked me, well, what would you uh, recommend um, to the parent who has children that are of an age that they are interested in reading this? Um, I mean, I don't think I need to worry about that because by the time any of my children are old enough to be interested in this sort of work, Hunger Games will be old news, will be ancient, will be long gone. But um, so what I said to him, uh, and perhaps Piers, you're, you'll, you might comment on this as well also as a father, I, I said to him, I wouldn't, uh, th- of course, depending on maturity levels and age of children, I mean, under a certain age or maturity level, I would just say, no, you can't read it. Um, you know, you can't handle that. You can read it later, maybe. But for a child who's mature, that I think they can handle uh, uh, reading the, some of the disturbing things in there, I, I would say, allow your children to read it because I, I don't, I personally don't think that our, I mean, we need to shelter our children to a degree, but I don't think, but there's such a thing as sheltering them too much or smothering them. So I, I said to him, I think what I would do is say, okay, you can read it, but we should discuss it beforehand, and the parent must, must, must read the novel first, and then you kind of discuss, okay, look, these are some of the themes that are going to be in here. Uh, you know, you're, you might have nightmares because there's some bad stuff in there. Uh, to kind of discuss it and then have a, a thorough debriefing after a child. You know, what did you think? Well, you know, here here's a theme I picked up on. What do you think about that? And uh, I think that can... Um, turn a work that maybe if a child just reads it on their own without any input from parents, I think could be morally dangerous to them. But if you do it that way, I think you can, it could be turned into something good. And I think if you just, you know, children of a certain age, 15, 16, 17, you tell them flat, no, well, they're going to go to the library behind your back and pick up a copy and read it. Um, uh, So I think, but I think if you did it the way I'm suggesting, I think it it could be turned into a useful uh, uh, teaching uh, moment and uh, to use a modern phrase, I suppose. And uh, I, I don't think it's so dangerous that you couldn't you couldn't allow even that. I mean, obviously, there's some works that are so dangerous that under no circumstances uh, could it be allowed. You'd have to do everything in your power to prevent it. But I don't think this is one of those works. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I meant when I said in the first place that it was good literature. I meant good in the sense that it, it captivates the imagination or it has captivated the imagination of, of a group of young people. And as you say, you can use that as a vehicle for discussing certain issues. I think there is a bad way of criticizing children's literature on the basis that it's too violent or um, too distressing or deals with too difficult issues because children want to know about these things. They, they need to know about these things. I don't think we should be necessarily protecting our children from from reading things that it might be, in a sense, difficult for them to read, uh, per se. There was a, a children's writer, a purely secular and liberal children's writer, admittedly, too, here in the UK, Anthony Horowitz, um, who was giving a talk at Oxford saying, you know, I, I, have, I don't have any particular message to give, 
only um, I am concerned about violence in children's books. Uh, that really bothers me. Uh, there's not enough of it. Obviously, it's meant <laughs> as a joke. But um, there's an element of truth in what he's saying. Children do need fiction that deals with difficult subjects. And there's, there's nothing in per se in the, the idea of the Hunger Games which is bad for children, I don't think. It's the way it's handled. It's the way it's and dealt with. And it's the, the moral angle. It's the moral... Um, uh, solution that's found out of the problem, which is the difficulty, isn't it? Not not necessarily anything particularly that happens. Obviously, if it's overly um, pornographic or dealing with with issues which you know really should, young children should, just shouldn't be dealing with, that's a different matter. But something like uh, violence or fear, no, not necessarily. No, and, I, and I think there's clearly a role for that. I, you used the phrase earlier, provocation. You know, what what am I being provoked to think about? Because that's what any great piece of literature asks of you. Is is to think and question your your situation to, to to reexamine your values and your situation against what you're reading, and I'm thinking about uh, the lottery uh, by Shirley Jackson, which uh, a lot of people mentioned in talking about the Hunger Games. For those who don't know, mm-hmm. it's a short story, and I'll I'll definitely put a link. It's in the public domain, so I'll put a link to it up on Twitter here in a moment. But, um, Nicholas, I think you're familiar with this work. Why don't you tell the readers a little bit about it? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm, I mean, I reread it in preparation for this show, but I remember it when I was in uh, junior high, I think. Uh, we read it in school. And uh, it's a, a short story that uh, appears to take place in a, uh, again, a dystopian future society where... Uh, it's somewhat, it's less mysterious as to how or why this developed, but it, it seems to be something that developed among the people themselves, not something that was imposed from above, where they have this practice of a once a year doing a lottery um, where one person from the village is selected to be sacrificed on behalf of the, of, of the village. Um, and, I mean, it's a quite a short story there's not too much more to it than that but it, yeah it, I can see the parallel that people are drawing uh, between that and the Hunger Games it has again that similar thing of well people question it but no one has the guts to go against this uh, this system and then they go along with it and horribly murder the uh, poor victim who loses the lottery at the end of it all or who wins the lottery you might say <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, then, then, and I, especially with the lottery, I think, uh, and take the time to read it because it's not very long. It's probably about 3,000, 4,000 words. The sort of inevitability about the lottery, um, the whole, that is, that moves forward. No one's going to change it. Uh, sort of playing off of the trope of tradition. Of course, tradition is something that, you know, generally, especially the three gentlemen here who are hosting the show, uh, very much like and, and, and try to incorporate into our lives. But here, of course, the tradition is, is a horrible one uh, and one that, um, one that should be stood up against. Um, again, continuing this role of uh, continuing on this this theme of, of provocation that appears it alluded to earlier. When I think of dystop- dystopic novels, I I always go back to 1984 and Brave New World, and I, I guess I'll, I'll re-ask the question that I, I asked at the beginning of the show of both you and later on Pierre's. Should Catholics read 1984 and Brave New World if they haven't? Uh, should children read it? And, and why or why not? 
Well, uh, perhaps I'll let Piers go ahead first since he's the uh, educator. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to maybe make a distinction between uh, should read it and could read it. I mean, I don't think either of those books are books that should be read per se. I mean, that, that must be read. I think they can be read with, with advantage if they're read in the right kind of way. Funnily enough, I think um, The Hunger Games sort of mixes both, elements of both worlds. In the, 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 world, the, the world of 1984 is this very drab, ostensibly very poor, in a sense, tyranny, where it doesn't, wealth doesn't matter anymore because power is all that matters. Uh, nothing else matters. No enjoyment, no pleasure, uh, nothing whatsoever except raw power. Uh, and everything is sacrificed to that. In Brave New World, on the other hand, everything is controlled through pleasure, through entertainment, um, and ostensibly it's an extremely rich society. And, of course, in The Hunger Games, you have the districts which are kind of Orwellian and poor and drab, and, and everybody's starving, and starving of everything. They have nothing, no material culture worth the name, really. Um, and in the capital, they're, they're also oppressed by absolute superfluity of their society, their culture, their material culture. Just everything is pure entertainment. They're, they're portrayed in the book, and I imagine the film as well, as being utterly facile, superficial people. With Apart from sinner, I suppose, um, with, with nothing to say for themselves except empty-headed chit-chat. So it kind of combines elements of both uh, 1984 and the Brave New World. I think, in a sense, our own society is closer, at least where we live, in Britain, Canada, and America, to the brave new world, we're being bought off in a sense with um, sensibly wealthy, liberal, uh, entertaining, media-driven uh, society. And Huxley does a very good job at showing, the, in some sense, the, the dangers there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for my answer to Stephen's question, uh, I, I would just jump to your question of should Catholics read 1984 and Brave New World and should can young Catholics read them I would say yes um, I, I think uh, there, there aren't the same moral dangers or ambiguities uh, in either of those works but they still I think benefit from perhaps a preview with the parents and a debriefing and again yeah. children need to be of a certain age and maturity level but I think they're very important works for young people to read because a lot of the things that are going on in 1984 and Brave New World are things that are going on in the real world. And um, like I, I know some people object to that. Um, I, I've heard stories at traditional Catholic schools or uh, homeschooling groups where there's been acrimonious debate over this, some parents saying that, Mm-hmm. And 1984 should not be read. They're not going to allow any of their children to read it because it has uh, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, impurity in it. You know, there's some... I, I personally uh, I haven't read 1984 in a while, but I don't remember it being particularly graphic. And not so much mm-hmm. so that... I mean, I mean to me... Someone in high school, certainly grade 11, grade 12, should be able to handle the amount that's in 1984. And they should be able to handle it by that age. Because if they can't handle it by that age, uh, they're going to be in for a tough ride when they turn Mm -hmm. 18 and uh, um, start going to university or 
uh, getting into the workforce and they're going to get, you know, the, the fire hose to the face of, uh, of all this stuff. So, uh, again, that yeah. goes back to my personal view. And, um, I mean, I'm not trying to set myself up as some great authority on parenting. Uh, and uh, I'm obviously just a layman. But the, the approach I, I'm taking with my children is that they need to be sheltered, yes, but they also need to be given a, a, a bit so that they can be equipped and and ready to enter into the world at some point. Well, yeah. too, uh, I think one of the beauties and luxuries of homeschooling is it allows you to tailor to each individual child. And as you know that certain punishments don't work for different children and you or certain ways of interacting um, don't work with certain children. Also, Sue, too, some children in your family, this might be a good read, and for others it, it wouldn't. Um, so that's something else that homeschooling homeschoolers, I think, should should take into to mind. I think it goes back to your original comment of we can go put this and say, well, it's satanic, and and then this just eat, furthers our isolation and makes Catholics into the Amish. The Amish, you go back and they want to have these covenant communities where they where they don't encounter any impurity at all because that they're afraid of being contaminated. Whereas that's never been the Catholic approach. The Catholic approach has never been to ghettoize ourselves but to go ad gentes and try to encounter people where they are. And I think, again, this goes back to not only the rise on thought of our show, but um, but today's show theme particularly is that this is something people are talking about. And it's a great way to encounter people uh, by talking about, you know, how, 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 how does Christianity respond to this? How does Catholicism respond to what's going on in this book? And we see, we see also, too... Uh, Especially, particularly Roman Catholicism. There's a Rome is stamped all over this book, and I think perhaps uh, not 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 because there's a dearth of imagination, but because Rome always will appeal to the imagination. So the capital city looks, you know, very imperial. Um, you have panem, the the Latin word for bread. There's the reaping, you know, implying that you have to crush the grains in order to make the bread. Um, you have people named Cinna, Seneca, Caesar. Um, what what is what is still fascinating uh, uh, about secular Rome uh, to these writers who have obviously side completely sidestepped Christian Rome? What do you think is what do you think is the appeal there? I, I, to be honest, I think in in this book it's it's it must be partly just purely the gladiatorial element, isn't it? Uh, the idea of Rome as being the archetypical society that, that became so corrupt through power that it could do this to people, and the idea that you know, the, 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 I mean, even the game makers, the, the way that they present the games in the book, is a bit like the, the later gladiatorial shows where they would, you know, if the audience was getting bored, they'd chuck in some live animals just to get the people running around a bit more before they get killed. You know, it's that absolutely cynical way of manipulating entertainment through these very violent means, and I wonder if they're just trying to present. The capital as a decayed Romanesque, if you like, uh, political entity or cultural entity. Yeah, yeah I think uh, yeah, ancient Rome still holds, or in people's imagination, if they think, will think of the the great empire that's become morally decadent and corrupt, Rome is still the one that people are going to come back to. So I suspect that's why. Um, Suzanne Collins went with that kind of Roman theme for the capital. Uh, although, as a brief aside to that, I found it interesting in the film that the aesthetic of the capital 
in that version of the Hunger Games is kind of a neo-Victorian uh, feel, which I almost uh, it may be coincidence. I wonder if that a, again another kind of a dig at uh, uh, tradition or the old world uh, because um, uh, yeah, it has like this neo-Victorian look. I mean, the president himself wears a uh, a morning suit that could have come out of the 1800s, um, but then the other people they wear basically neon Victorian clothing. Um, I mean, the women have the big hoop dresses, and they have wild hair that maybe didn't exist in the Victorian era, but they have the the, the hats and the, um, you know, a lot of the kind of telltale Victorian things, coats, ties, mm. uh, things like that. Um, so they have a bit less of the Roman aesthetic there, but uh, I think in a certain way, uh, you know, we're still, I've mentioned earlier, I feel that our society is running somewhat on the fumes of Christendom, and Christendom did build upon the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire became Christianized, and Roman Catholic Church has obviously many elements from the Roman Empire, so it's always been a very identifying feature of our uh, uh, Western uh, European identity. And uh, so, you know, it may have been even just a subconscious kind of working it in there of it's the archetypical empire, the art, you know, the capital, the center of all things. In a, in a way, all all roads maybe still do lead to Rome. No, and I, I I think I think all of those I think all of those comments are germane. For those of you who are just tuning in, again, this is Restoration Radio, our third broadcast today. We are talking about the Hunger Games, um, understanding how to look at such a secular book through a Christian lens. Um, my co-host Nicholas Wansbutter of Swords in Space, and Dr. Pierre Hugel, a Catholic educator and writer. Um, we are still continuing to take questions via Twitter, um, again at twitter.com forward slash true restoration, and at the Swords in Space Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash swords in space. Um, and for the old fashioned type telephone, um, you can call in at 949 272 9417. Again, that's 949 272 9417. If we come back to these, the, the sort of nomenology, uh, we talked about Panem, the Reaping, all these, these Roman ideas, and Nicholas, you, you also referred to the, the fumes of Christianity. And we saw in some of the commentaries the, the reference to a, pro, a post-Christian era. Does it go without saying that we are in a post-Christian era, and is it defeatism to say such a thing? Uh, you, are, are you talking about it in the novel or in our world today? Both. Well, the, the novel is clearly post-Christian, maybe even beyond post-Christian, because post-Christian, um, to my mind, would imply uh, still, still some memory of right. uh, Christian society, whereas uh, the Hunger Games is so post-Christian that it's like as if Christianity never existed, as far as they're concerned. Um uh, as for our modern society, I mean, I, I would say it's post-Christian. Yeah, there's still some elements of Christian civilization left, but I, I would say it's post-Christian in the sense that society as a whole has 
turned it largely turned its back on Christianity and Christian ideals, and um, you know the difference between uh, ancient Rome that never knew Christ because he hadn't come to the earth yet, and then versus the situation we have now, where we have known Christ and we've uh, rejected his kingship in society. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's overly pessimistic or defeatist. But I, I just don't see any other way to describe it. I mean, when you have societies where, um, you know, a whole uh, abortion on demand is available, where d- d- divorce is available without, you know, freely available, um, contraceptives freely available and widely used, um, no mention of Christ or God at all. I mean, it's you know, the separation of church and state to the point that it's forbidden to have any prayers in schools. Um, I, I don't know that there's any other way you could describe uh, the, the society we're living in now. Piers? Yeah, um, I think what's distinctive about a post-Christian society, I, I would agree with Nicholas, is that, that in a sense it still uses a, a, a Christian sort of intellectual mental landscape to define itself, but negatively speaking, so that you take the Christian worldview, uh, the language of the Bible, the language of the Christian tradition, and then you invert it, and that there's, there's a kind of, of a deep-seated hatred of all this Christian that, that, that motivates and, and, and dynamizes post-Christian society. It's as if it's still absolutely locked into to, to the Christianity, but negatively speaking, and that's what really makes it post-Christian. Uh, so it's it's it never escaped um, Christianity in the way that it, perhaps the, the the world of Pan Am has done. Uh, you only have to to read um, people who are so pro-abortion, uh, pro-contraception, pro-homosexuality, pro whatever it might be. To, to realize how motivated they are by their hatred of all those Christian, which they see as being the, the polar opposite of what they're looking for. It's the age-old story of Freemasonry, isn't it? And, and other forms of rebellion in the past that have distinctively made the Roman Catholic Church, by and large, the enemy. Well, yes, we, talked, completely... we talked earlier about that idea of the propaganda, the propagandiza- propagandization of the new normal with the female heroines. Mm-hmm. Well, we also see Richard yeah. Dawkins, um, the, the Christopher Hitchens, the Golden Compass books mm-hmm. um, all have to reinforce not only simply uh, an atheism, but of course a virulent hatred of God. Um, so not not simply enough to say that he doesn't exist, but anti-Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You joined us in Medias Res, so I wanted to make sure we, we caught, caught back up and, and made sure we chatted about anything else that you wanted to cover that we may have missed by ha- not having you in on the first part of the show. Yeah, I didn't hear you discuss uh, Dune and Hunger Games, if you didn't you did get around to discussing that. Oh, yes. Well, we uh, I think this this is definitely to, to Nicholas's point because, you know, we're always the doom and gloom types, you know, don't do this, do that. <laughs> Uh, and so don't read this. Don't read that. <laughs> don't read that. Don't listen to this. And so you know we're a rather cheerful bunch. And and I think rather than being accused of simply being against something, of course this is never what Christianity is. Christianity is not simply um, avoid evil, but it does also do good. And um, one of the things that we need to look at here is all right. Okay, 
The Hunger Games not recommended by either Nicholas Pierce or the show, it seems. What alternatives are out there? And I think I want to sidestep the usual Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings references, because mm. not only because I want it, it's self-serving and I want to save that for a future show, but because people will sort of say, oh, yes, of course. Um, so apart from that, um, Nicholas, um, I, I, I don't want to lead you with Canticle of Leibowitz, um, but I know what you think about Dune. So pick pick either of those. Uh, well, we can start with... Uh with Dune, uh, because I know that's uh, your recommendation, Stephen. Um, <laughs> I don't uh, particularly uh, um, not recommend it. I, I don't. I, I think it, it has many, many very interesting things. The world building is phenomenal, and that's one of the really endearing features of it. Uh, it's considered one of the all-time science fiction classics. I just know for myself, when I finally got around to reading it, I was rather underwhelmed and uh, found Maybe there's too much hype. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I, I just found myself thinking, like, really? That's it? This is the all-time science fiction classic? Like, you know, I've read a lot better. Um, I, again, the world building's top-notch. I think maybe my problem with it is the execution. Uh, I, I thought that the um, scene selection was very odd and a lot of the most important things that you'd expect to see, quote, on screen, unquote, you don't. Uh, you just kind of hear about it afterwards. Um, um, so I guess maybe that was what fueled some of my disappointment with it. I mean, it's not uh, it, it's not bad. It, it's certainly interesting in its own way. I just um, th- there's other books that I'd recommend before that one. Mm. But maybe I'll let you uh, tell us why you do recommend it. Um, well, I, I in the sense that. I, I think Russell Kirk talks about having a moral imagination, and I think part of part of the challenge of science fiction. And again, uh, it's it's definitely conceded here as a niche. I know, um, Pierce, it's not part of your normal reading repertoire, um, but I think that with the incorporation of of this element, of this advanced level of our society, that again, there's a benefit to exploring the positive aspects of technology, um, because I think clearly we see the negative effects around us all the time, and there are definitely some positives as well. I mean, here we're we're broadcasting via Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States to a worldwide audience. Um, I, I can't say that, that technology is all bad, but I think science fiction affords us that unique opportunity to continue to examine that role of technology, especially in the future. Um, and so as far as expanding the moral universe, I, I like that um, to other worlds. I also um, look always to the, the Ben-Hur, um, El Cid, um, Spartacus, um, Dune, um, Christ figure, the one who shall lead you know, the chosen people from the wilderness. I think, obviously, it's a popular theme, um, but I think it's something I like seeing played out in another galaxy in another time. I think, um, I think we can... We can we can derive benefit from that. I do not consider myself as having enough of a sophisticated palette of science fiction as you do in order to uh, judge it um, in that way, stacking up against other science fiction. But I know we definitely agree on Starship Troopers, as far as I know. Uh, excellent book, terrible film. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll cite the, the film. film. The film had scarcely anything to do with the novel, so... Well, why don't you talk a little bit about the novel, and then I think we'll talk about Canticle for Leibowitz a little bit. Sure. Um, well, uh, 
Oh, it's been a long time since I read uh, Starship Troopers, but um, very, uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting from the aspect of, um, you know, you say technology and how it's being used in the future, but I, I think it's a great novel in terms of uh, martial virtue, and, um, you know, it's obviously about soldiers and uh, uh, the certain acts of self- selflessness and heroism that, Soldiers do, and it's a, it's a good work in that regard. Uh, some good. I think, it's, cer- I think it's certainly fascinating in a, in a world in which we're so isolated from the wars our countries fight. That in this right. world you can't be a citizen unless you serve. Right, and, and that's yeah, that's where I was just leading to with my next point. I think it has some interesting themes of uh, civic duty, and um, and in that regard, and uh, kind of going back to. Uh, I guess an opinion of mine, or uh, something that I found, is I sometimes wonder if we'd be involved in all the wars we're involved in if our leaders had to uh, lead us into those wars like they used to have to. <laughs> Certainly not, especially oh. here as we near the uh, the presidential election in the United States this November. We're in all likelihood going to have two candidates who've never spent any time in the military, but who are all bluster when it comes to uh, sending the troops in. Right. So... Um, yeah, Starship Troopers, uh, an oldie but a goodie. Um, it was written in the 50s, but certainly uh, I'd recommend that. And then Canticle for Leibowitz is, um, uh, I, I mean, I'd almost, it's almost one of those ones kind of like Lord of the Rings. and uh, Recommended reading. I, I, I suspect a lot of people, it's kind of obvious. I mean, it's a, but if you want a dystopian post-apocalyptic, I mean, that's a work that completely nails it. And I was, Complaining well, yes, earlier dystopian apocalyptic plus Catholicism. Right, Late and that's the beauty of it, because it shows how even though there's been this terrible nuclear war that's wiped out the world, um, Chris, the, the Roman Catholic Church is still there. Um, now, interesting, that book was written uh, back in the 50s, so you've got a traditional Catholicism, and um, the love that the author has for that Traditional Roman Catholicism is clear in in his depiction of it, and you've got all sorts of beautiful Latin prayers and Gregorian chant and things like that in the work. Um, and it's interesting, as a side note, that the author, after Vatican II, fell into a deep depression that lasted for decades and culminated in, in him killing himself. And I've read commentaries saying that a large part of that is because I think he was a convert to Catholicism, and the changes that occurred just completely devastated him which, I, I mean, I'm sure happened to a lot of people. But uh, the beauty of that work, um, uh, the, like, I, I know some people don't particularly like it, but uh, I, I think it's great um, the way it shows Catholicism. Uh, and it's not in a preachy way, and it's a, it's an interesting story. It's actually three... Um, novellas kind of long, within, within the novel, three, yeah. Yeah, three novellas that take place a few hundred years apart from each other, um, kind of showing the resurgence of civilization in that world and has uh, the cyclical theme which I think is something somewhat prevalent in, in Christianity the maybe it's got a bit of uh, uh, the those who uh, don't forget history are doomed to repeat it because by the end they're kind of going back the same way that, that they started in the beginning uh, so uh, yeah there's very good work I think uh, and good work for young people. You might even get them interested in, in monastic life a little because it's a a good uh, depiction of that as well as the other things that are going on in it. 
um, deals with a number of interesting issues. It deals with uh, the uh, abortion euthanasia issue very effectively. Um, in the uh, third novella, that's one of the major themes. And, and Pierre, uh, not not to leave you out, not only because you know you teach young people all the time, but because ultimately we're trying to provide an answer. So if we say, well, you know, the Hunger Games is out there, and fine, if, if you if you read it, we're not recommending it. We're we're offering a lot of alternatives here, which are all available at your local public library for for free. Mm-hmm. Um, what um, what has been on your mind lately in terms of poetry or or literature that you think is particularly resonant um, for young people? Something that they can really sort of Use, I think, in Nicholas's terms, to commiserate yeah. the sort of abandonment in society of being isolated, which I, I feel, unfortunately, is perhaps even the case among trads. That's why this book, The Hunger Games, is so popular yeah. among even traditional Catholics, not just atheists. No, no, quite. Um, well, I was just going to comment. I mean, as you said, uh, as you indicated, uh, it's not been a major theme of my own personal reading since I was uh, a teenager, I guess, reading science fiction. I did read the Dune books. And I guess I and I guess I enjoyed them at the time. I don't remember a great deal about them. I have to say, I do think science fiction can be very good in the sense that it it can create imaginary worlds where you know you can think through the possibilities of either dystopian or utopian ideas. Right, but but um, in terms of and in that sense, it's it's. But, sorry, Nicholas. So I was going to say, in terms of non-science fiction, what would you recommend? Oh yes, I was going to go on to that. Yeah, I I, th- I mean. Call me an stickler, but I think something like um, John Senior's uh, A Thousand Good Books program is not a bad one for Catholic parents to start with. Uh, in terms of, of, of Catholic parents thinking about what their children should be reading, I think John Senior's general approach is very good. He doesn't try to make it, make it explicitly Catholic for a start, but he does uh, tend to emphasize older books because... And I think he's right. The, the, the kind of world in which those books uh, are, take place is a more traditional one. It's one in which family is still central. It's one in which people have real experience of the world, do things with their hands, um, uh, genuinely uh, appreciate their local community and their local traditions. And, and I think that can be a, actually can really capture the imagination of young people, particularly people who who. Um, you know, young people who have since isolated in cities and, and no longer have access to that, it can can create a kind of a yearning in them for another world, but a world which actually was real and could be again, we hope. Uh, so I think looking through something like, you know, John Senior's recommended reading in uh, A Thousand Good Books or even the Ed Ocere list uh, of, of recommended reading for young people can be very good. For myself, some of the reading that I did when I was a teenager was of things like the Icelandic sagas, which I thought, you know, they're not they're not really... I mean, they are Christian, fundamentally, because they're all about um, overcoming the, the evils of pagan Norse society, which is vendetta, effectively. Um, but they really captured my imagination, and, and they're so simple and so straightforward and so human, but yet so exciting, uh, that I think looking at even... Out of outside the box, so to speak, old old fiction, old books like that can be can be quite good. Uh, good modern translations of of the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, of Beowulf. Uh, these are these are fantastic, and children love them. Uh, so read those with your children. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I'm less au fait with with uh, modern uh, novels. 
Um, the one I was, it's not a modern novel by any stretch, uh, but one of the things that I was thinking about in c- comparison with The Hunger Games, and I was wondering whether it was good or bad, was uh, William Golding's The Lord of the Flies. Um, good in the same sense that I indicated at the beginning, because it really does capture children's imagination. What would I do if I was in that situation? How would I cope on my own uh, as a child rather than as an adult like Robinson Crusoe? Stuck with a bunch of other children, which is sort of part of the theme of the Hunger Games too. But inevitably, um, it's uh, there's a problem with it because um, it de-emphasizes uh, a Christian solution. It, it, it suggests that there's evil in us, but it doesn't find any any atonement, any salvation in there. It just has a miserable ending yeah. that we're thoroughly rotten. <laughs> it's almost as if it was a Lutheran ending, almost <laughs> you might think. Uh, and all the good guys get killed or turned into savages, effectively. Um, but still, worth thinking about. Yes, absolutely. Nicholas, any last-minute additions to the list that we've been brainstorming a bit? Um, that, I was, was going to ask you about the think. time machine. Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm i trying to think. And maybe uh, it's, uh, I think it's something I'd have to sit down and think about a bit more because I, I know there are... Um, Lots of works to be recommended, and uh, I think with a view to not everyone is going to be capable of reading the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Song of Roland or things of that as great as they are. I think when you recognize not all young people are going to be interested in those, so I think we need there are there are there are modern works to be recommended. I just unfortunately uh, don't have a list in mind right now, so perhaps that's something uh, we should return to in a future show. Maybe we'll return to it when we. Uh, Discuss the Harry Potter book. Yes, that that, that is still ahead of us. Um, well, speaking of lists, um, as, as Piers was talking, I had a chance to pull up an abridged version of the 1,000 Good Books. Those of you who aren't familiar with this phrase, something Dr. John Sr. talks about in his books, The Restoration of Christian Culture and the, the Death of Christian Culture. Of course, The Restoration of Christian Culture, one of the inspirations for the name of my blog and, of course, ultimately our radio show. Um, and that has been posted on uh, Twitter, the um, True Restoration Twitter. So twitter.com forward slash True Restoration. You'll find a link there. You'll also find a link to Richard Connell's The Most Dangerous Game, also in the public domain. There's a link to the, the, the short story there. But in this, uh, in that short story, a man is sh- a great game hunter is shipwrecked on an island, which is run by another great game hunter who has found that his new favorite sport is not hunting big game, but about hunting. Uh, humans. So uh, that would also uh, be a good read. Um, So all of those are linked on our page. Uh, Again, this is Restoration Radio, uh, wrapping up our third broadcast. Um, Today we talked about the Hunger Games, um, looking at it through a Catholic lens, trying to examine these themes, um, always uh, what in the light of eternity, what are the endearing themes that they're looking at, and what do we as Catholics bring to a work like this. My co-hosts have been uh, Nicholas Wansbutter of Swords in Space. You can find him at swordsinspace.blogspot.com. Also, swordsinspace.com. Swordsinspace.com, so even better. Uh, You don't have to to rely on the the Google platform. Um, And also joining us, uh, late-breaking, but uh, still very much uh, needed, uh, Dr. Pierce Hugel from the United Kingdom, a Catholic educator and writer. Um, always there for consultation on Catholic homeschooling and on the liberal arts curriculum, which I, I think is something that's desperately needed and maybe something, uh, peers we can talk about in a future show 
just, you know, what is the roadmap for um, Catholic homeschoolers? Um, Because there's so many things out there. We alluded to the good books today. We so often hear about the great books, which may not be always the best pick um, for everyone. uh, So that's why Senior came up with the the idea of the good books, because they're much easier for access for for younger children, as Nicholas says. I was thinking of my own experience with the Iliad and the Odyssey and so on. (laughs) Absolutely. If you'd like to see more of the type of work that we're doing, you can find it, of course, on our on our blog, true Re- on on my blog, truerestoration.blogspot.com, and as I alluded to earlier, our YouTube channel, youtubecom truerestoration, and truerestorationmedia.com, which has full-length, uh, long-form interviews with Catholic clergy and laymen. Um, our future show topics, um, we're always in flux because I think part of what we're trying to do is be timely. Uh, that's part of what led to the SSPX show. And there there may be, of course, further developments there. We may do a, a another version of that show. Um, Father Chicada has said that he's welcome to come. Uh, he's happy to come back on and, and say that he was wrong uh, to see if there is actually an agreement. But um, we'll save that for the future. In the meantime, we will leave you um, with the what we started with, the theme for the Hunger Games um, by Mephiston, and that will end our show, and we will see you next time. Thank you again, Nicholas and Pierce, for joining us. Always a pleasure. This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honor of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.